Hi everyone, welcome to Human to Human. I'm your host Sarah Scher, and this is the very first season of the University of Manitoba's Anthropology Department podcast, where I hope to explore the topic of anthropology through conversation with faculty and students so that everyone can have a better understanding of what anthropology is and can be. This podcast was also created on a campus located on the original lands of the Anishinaabe, Cree, Oji Cree, Dakota, and Dene people, and the homeland of the Métis Nation. As a podcast dedicated to anthropology, this project is also a part of the Anthropology Department's commitment to community engagement and research on the rich, diverse, and multifaceted ways of being human. Once again, I'm your host Sarah Scher, and this is Human to Human. everyone, thanks for joining us on today's episode of Human to Human, where we will be talking about archaeology. I'm Sarah, and sitting next to me is my guest, Garth Sutton. Garth is currently a PhD student in archaeology at the University of Manitoba, with a focus on Indigenous ceramic technology. He has over 11 years of fieldwork in Manitoba, Ontario, and Tunisia, and has worked in both government and private consulting sectors. Previously, Garth obtained a master's degree in environmental studies at Lakehead University, and his research at the time focused on the ecological impacts of the fur trade in Manitoba and eastern Saskatchewan. Garth, thank you for being here and taking the time to chat with me today about archaeology. No, no worries. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So I was wondering if we could begin with you first telling me a bit about how you became interested in anthropology and archaeology more specifically. Yeah. It was kind of a roundabout way. Uh, When I first got into kind of cultural heritage archaeology, I was really focused on classical studies. Uh, My undergraduate's actually in classical studies and anthropology archaeology. It was a double double major from the University of Winnipeg. Um, And uh, before that, though, I was in law, (laughs) which is kind of strange. But, yeah, um, uh, I'm, I'm... (laughs) <laughs> I'm not exactly sure why I went into law at the okay. time, but I just kind of ended up that way. And I was always reading authors, like classical authors, like Livy, Herodotus, Suetonius, and stuff, kind of focusing on Greek, or not Greek, but like Roman stuff, and, and I guess some Greek stuff as well. Um, so a friend of mine who's a, a classical archaeologist in Massachusetts now, he really kind of uh, persuaded me to take some classical courses at the University of Winnipeg. So I did, and I completely fell in love with you know with it and um then I went and got my first experience my field experience in, in Tunisia we were excavating at a Roman cemetery in 2005 mm-hmm. uh and then I graduated in 2007 and I started working for the historic resource branch which is the Manitoba Department of Heritage Culture Tourism Sport and that completely changed my my research focus from kind of a classical mindset to uh one focusing on um, boreal forest, northern plains stuff in Canada mostly, and also indigenous rights and land use and like traditional studies and stuff like that. And that all not just changed my research scope, but changed me as a person too, like going to ceremony and learning about the different like, you know, stories and stuff through their oral histories. And then from there, uh, yeah, I've worked for private consulting companies and, and um, in all over, you know, and uh, and then when I went to Lakehead, um, yeah, I kind of started with uh, my advisor, Scott Hamilton, who's still my advisor. Actually, he's on my committee okay. for my PhD, and uh, that's kind of how I got to where I am now. And is there a reason why you chose to 
do a master's in environmental studies versus, let's say, doing a master's in archaeology yeah, right away? I think it was a little bit more comprehensive, like, for what I was looking at, like, an ecological aspect of it. So it was kind of a combination between anthropology and geography. And also, you know, I went to Lakehead to work with Scott, uh, who's a brilliant fur trade archaeologist, just a brilliant archaeologist in general. Okay. And that's primarily the reason why I went to Lakehead. Because I, I was originally actually in talks with a professor at the University of Saskatchewan, uh, Dr. David Natcher, doing uh, talking about doing like traditional ethnobotany and stuff like that. Um, but the department was going through kind of a transition stage and they weren't accepting graduate students at that time. So I made the choice to go to Lakehead and I haven't really regretted it. So <laughs> Okay. And do you, do you have personal connections with the Indigenous communities here in Manitoba? Yes, I have worked in a lot of communities in, in Manitoba, Alberta, Ontario, and um, I was kind of taken, I, I don't want to say adopted, but this elder from Cross Lake, mm-hmm. uh, Kamak, uh kind of took me under his wing and uh, taught me how to track animals and you know I, I went on hunting excursions with them and stuff we were doing a lot of work on Sipawisk Lake and Bulger Lake as part of this project through the historic resource branch in Manitoba Hideway, uh, Hydro their waterways management uh, plan um, and I just have a like I just had a connection and, and like going to the ceremonies and stuff and uh, so I, I've made a lot of uh, connections I've also done uh, work kind of on behalf of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission as well talking about uh, the effects of colonization on indigenous agriculture and how it kind of feeds into food sovereignty now on mm-hmm. in communities um but yeah i think if you want to do archaeology it's critical to cultivate relationships uh, especially because if you're going on their traditional tar- territory you know it's always good to get permission and, and offer tobacco and stuff to the elders and the, the counselors and stuff like that and to have community members come out with you and elders because they have a different perspective of the land and uh, there, and the continuity of land use as well, which feeds into archaeological field methodologies and interpretation. And then for the interpretive aspect too, when you're doing artifact analysis and stuff like that, and like kind of site formation processes also, it's really good to have uh, knowledge from knowledge holders uh, for the interpretation. Like I'll give you an example. Last year there were two ancestors that were recovered at Lockport, mm-hmm. um, dated primarily between... Uh, I'd say late 19th century, and they weren't buried in St. Peter's Deniver Church. Um, uh, and we were trying to figure out, like, why. You know, they were kind of buried in these shallow internments on this kind of clay knoll overlooking the Red River in a flex position, like, you know, one of the individuals was in a birch bark scroll and so, or in an envelope. And one of the elders from Pegwis uh, said they were probably in the Midway one because one of the individuals had a pole um, on top of him, placed on top of him, and which means that uh, it was kind of his initiation pole. Mm. And that's one of the reasons why they weren't buried in the cemetery, because they weren't baptized. So like, is that type of, uh, you know, information that's critical in the interpretation? And, and, you know, it's a different kind of epistemology, right? Like, you have to get the, the right, it's not like a one-size-fits-all all kind of thing, right? So. And this is sort of a further conversation on why it's important for archaeologists to have relations with the communities where they're doing archaeological work. Because a lot of the time there is contextual information that if you don't have community members to maybe speak on, um, it's hard to know, right? Yeah, totally. Because like essentially like in archaeology, you're just looking at stuff, right? Like, Like essentially garbage. And 
just kind of trying to figure out the behaviors behind that stuff like the kind of it's called the, the ideational realm you know like the stuff that you can't see but is critical because it's just part of another system that the artifacts were in use and yeah like having that different perspective just it's it's amazing it's kind of critical it is could you maybe talk a bit more about what research you are currently doing or even the projects that you're currently working on? Yeah, for sure. Um, well, I'm doing my PhD on uh, looking at pre-contact pottery, the manufacturing processes and, and stuff that uh, were used. Because in, in, in traditional CRM, culture historical processes, you do seriation analysis to kind of develop culture histories based on artifact attributes, like just kind of on the surface, you know. And Number one, you know, looking at artifacts to determine a cultural group is there's it's fraught with uh, difficulties because I drive a Nissan and I'm not part of the Nissan culture because I drive a Nissan, right? <laughs> yeah. And essentially, that's that's the way that archaeological artifacts have been looked at in Canada because they're developing a culture history, not necessarily looking at kind of you know. The cultural processes behind it they just don't need dates and stuff to kind of put it in a, in a, uh, a timeline um, but I'm looking at the manufacturing processes and specifically like the preforming and the shaping of the vessels because that's learned when you're really young it becomes kind of ingrained in your motor habits and it's really resistant to change so and, and it permeates like you know cultural burial barrier mm-hmm. um, barriers and stuff like that um, so unfortunately I haven't done like, you know, with the, with the pandemic and stuff like that, uh, I'm still writing my research proposal right now, but uh, I'm, I'm really looking forward to, uh, to continuing. And I'm also hopefully going to be working with uh, an Anishinaabe potter, Casey Adams, who makes pottery the way we think that they made it, you know, bat in the past and kind of, you know, documenting the steps that she takes in the construction of the vessel and why she takes those steps, why she uses this particular material, like, you know, raw materials of clay and temper and stuff like that and the decorations and stuff um, as well. Because a lot of this type of information was lost through colonization, through residential schools and stuff. And that's another reason why, um, I think it's important to kind of, you know, do this study so you can share it with the communities and the elders and stuff like that. Um, mm. There hasn't been much ethno-historical work done in the boreal forest looking at pottery manufacturing. Like, you know, there's been a lot of work done in uh, North Dakota and stuff on, like, you look at the Mandan Hadatsa and stuff, like George Caitlin, you know, it's a great example of that. But uh, not so much in the boreal forest. And uh, it's just kind of good creating, like, a baseline that would kind of, you know, help that out. What's the what's the dates or time frame um, in terms of the pottery that you're looking at? Yeah, like essentially, like you know, it's uh, middle woodland, late woodland. It's between uh, about 200 BC, like you know, before Common Era, to contact, really proto-contact, okay. like you know, like the 1600s, like 17th century. Um, yeah, that sort of thing. But there's different, completely different t- kinds of cultural systems in play here like you know the initial pottery you find in, in Manitoba is called laurel and you know the, it comes from Minnesota and the shape is completely different the decorations are different than and the manufacturing process was was different to some degree uh, and then you see like other cultural constructs come in after that in the late woodlands uh, like black duck is a good example completely different pot globular you know different manufacturing processes you know we think that for the most part, they were made in, in uh, uh, fabric bags inside a leather mold um, so they can kind of get the, 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 sh- 
the the shape you know correct and quickly and that's where the bag comes in and it's also used as a, a separating agent as well between the, the, the clay and the, and the leather um, so yeah essentially I'm looking at a time period yeah like from you know 200 BC to say 1675 okay and y- you briefly mentioned CRM which for listeners who might not know that term is cultural resource management yes. correct yeah. and could you give an explanation of what what CRM is? Yeah, it's essentially, in most cases, mitigative work that's driven by kind of industry. Um, And it's part of the Environmental Assessment Act that was passed in 1972. There's no federal legislation for archaeology in Canada. It's province by province. And that becomes kind of difficult because it's not consistent. and, And some provinces have better heritage acts than others but essentially if you want to build something say like on the red river um, you have to uh, like the developer kind of puts in its uh, development plant the historic resource branch and then the historic resource branch kind of flags the area uh, if it's high potential if there you know work needs to be done and then you know everything goes out to tender and um, archaeological consulting companies come in and do you know shovel testing like you know presence absence and then if it gets to um to a point where you have to excavate a site then you know you do a block excavation you you essentially want to protect as much information as mm-hmm. possible because uh, like i mentioned before it's a non like archaeology is a non-renewable resource once it's gone it's gone and and also too while you're excavating these sites it's critical to take important notes get as much provenience as pros- possible because if an artifact doesn't have any provenience it's useless essentially and that's through like careful excavation and and uh, mitigation but and yeah like you know in canada a lot of these big projects like for like example kiosk you know since there's no federal legislation the 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 scope of the project goes to the canadian environmental uh, association or no the canadian environmental impact uh, department um i think i think that's what it's called but since there's no legislated legislation for archaeology a lot of it falls kind of by the wayside and then it becomes the provincial jurisdiction especially in the west because in the east natural resources were in control of the provinces right off from the Um, Mm get-go but in the west though initially when you know manitoba saskatchewan alberta bc joined confederation the natural resources were controlled by the state so in 1930 there was this natural resource transfer act that transferred all the natural resources into the provincial jurisdiction and that's how you know we get these separate heritage acts as opposed to one kind of overarching kind of federal act so essentially yeah like long story short crm is just a critical component of development essentially from from what i've also gained i guess in my schooling we kind of consider crm as part of the construction industry so like new developments as you kind of said and archaeologists are asked to come in and kind of excavate and look at the area before yeah new developments are made yeah yeah, and like a, a lot of these projects, they're they're multi-year. You just you know you look at the waterways management plan that Manitoba Hydro has, um, and the Churchill River Diversion Archaeological Project that started in the in the I think 1969. There are ongoing projects because like the damage to the environment to the sites is ongoing because mm-hmm. of you know um, uh, like just different water regiments and stuff. So so you have these multi-year projects or sometimes you just have a little project that's like almost a one-off say if you know someone wants to build a 
build a house on the Red River, you know, it's a kind of a small, a smaller project as opposed to like these large, massive industrial ones. So there's different kind of pegs for different holes. And also, mm -hmm. too, depending on where you're working, you have to implement different field methodologies based on settlement subsistence systems. Like in the Hudson's Bay Lowlands, you would implement a different testing strategy than you would in the Northern Plains because they're just completely different cultural groups and, and different life ways. Would you say that most of your work is under CRM? Yeah, for the most part, yeah. Um, uh, but fortunately, like since like I, I work for a very amazing community, uh, Pegwis First Nation, they are very concerned about cultural heritage mm -hmm. and specifically the lack of federal legislation, uh, the lack of Indigenous consultation, Section 35, um, and also uh, just, you know, who who gets the artifacts afterwards because technically they belong to the crown right but uh that's one thing that uh, they want to change too so they're very like outward thinking and, and also too like i'm not just you know saying pegwis is outward thinking a lot of other communities are outward thinking but we have like a lot of capacity at pegwis to kind of you know get the stuff that we want done complete so i just want to highlight one thing that you said there when these items are excavated, these artifacts, they belong to the crown. Yeah. So essentially, they don't go back to the communities right away. They're taken by the government. Is yeah. That oh, no, no, not the government. Not the, the government. Uh, the province. The province. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But, and also sometimes they're stored in like um, educational facilities like, you know, the University of Manitoba. And also I'm thinking at Lakehead, uh, there was a couple of massive projects so excavating really old paleo period sites mm. that was uh, essentially on the Manong Glacial Strandline, which is kind of a, like a, a glacial outwash lake of Agassiz. It was a larger version of Superior. And a lot of that stuff is stored at Lakehead. But that kind of gets into another issue of curational space because a lot of institutions, academic institutions, and obviously government facilities, because with this neoliberal ideology that's kind of permeated Canada, it's all about, you know, deregulation and and kind of you know a lot and archaeology cultural heritage essentially is the first kind of department that gets gutted you know mm -hmm. and uh, so a lot of uh, government buildings have been shut down yeah like th there's a, a cur cur curational kind of problem too but every once in a while though uh, there's uh, e education kits that are put together essentially replicas made of the artifacts and stuff like that through you know 3d scanning and 3d printing and stuff like that and they're kind of put in display cases and, and displayed in, in the, uh, you know school like community schools and stuff like that uh, but you know if you look at everything as a whole that's just a really small portion of the artifacts that are collected and uh and once again, too, like, you know, you might have uh, scholars in the community that might want ready access to this material for, you know, for whatever they want to do. Like, you know, if they're doing residue analysis or, or flake scar analysis or whatever. So, yeah, it, it's important to kind of change the, the jurisdiction from a, kind of a, a provincial to kind of individual communities. And like you've kind of talked about this before. Through your archaeology, you are looking at the past, and it's mainly focused on indigenous ceramic pottery and the communities and cultural heritage. So what would you say, like, in terms of studying archaeology, what that has maybe taught you about why studying the past is so important for today? Absolutely. Well, you know, without the past, there is no future, you know, and 
just this time of reconciliation. Well, you know, it, yeah, like reconciliation is like a massive part of it. But um, also, you know, the indigenous population were very flexible, very adaptive, and they lived in a very sustainable way. And I think, you know, we have to kind of get back to that way of thinking because the way that we're living right now is not really sustainable. Uh, and we're not really all that adaptive, really. You know, you look at some of the, like, Hurricane Fiona and stuff, you know, like, we're not prepared for that sort of thing. Um, and also just giving back to the communities. A lot of this was, a lot of this knowledge was essentially taken from them through colonization. And uh, and it gives them a source of, of pride. You know, like, I, I did a series of lectures for the Dakota Ojibwe Educational Authority on climate change and archaeology. Uh, and just just seeing the kids' faces light up when they see, like, artifacts and stuff, and elders too, you know, and it just gives you a really awesome, uh, amazing feeling inside to, to give back to, to essentially a group of people that have had their lives, like, turned upside down, you know? And, uh, yeah, I, I just think it's, it's important to, to kind of give back because they've given us so much, you know, so... So you're quite involved in public, what we consider public archaeology and like community outreach. And you, you've mentioned a bit about what that looks like. Could you maybe speak more about as the role as an archaeologist? It's not just about studying these items, but also giving back to the communities. So what in terms of the projects and community involvement that you've been doing, could you share a bit more about what that looks like? Yeah, absolutely. Just kind of consulting or, or contacting communities before going into their traditional territory, you know, talking to them. It's, it's like essentially called community archaeology, you know, like developing the process from the ground up, uh, including all the, I want to call them, you know, like stakeholders because, you know, that's, they are stakeholders. And, you know, forming like elders, counselors, and to get as much input as possible on the direction, uh, the way that they want to go, you know, um, because uh, there's like tangible and then there's intangible cultural heritage as well, like ceremonial sites and stuff that, you know, are, are very hard to mm. to determine if you're from a kind of a different cultural background or if you have a different epistemology or an ontology or whatever. Uh, and, and just bringing them back into the bush. And in some cases too, like a lot of, you know, the elders and stuff haven't been on the trap line or in the bush for a while because in some cases fuel prices are very high so they can't get fuel to go to the to their you know areas where they're trapping and stuff like that so it, it's really cool to kind of bring people in and also a lot of the ki the kids too in a lot of these communities you know they're they don't really go into the bush they're more fixated mm -hmm. on like you know like video games and stuff like, I, like this is a generalization like you know there are like young people that go to the trap line and stuff like that but then there's other kids that aren't and, and like just introducing them into the into the bush getting them into the bush and, and, and kind of reintroducing them to um archaeology or to traditional life ways and stuff mm. like that and getting input from elders and stuff and it's just a really amazing collaborative way to to get information and everybody coming together and stuff, you know, and, and talking and cultivating relationships that last for a lifetime. Uh, and I, I think that's that's very important because in a lot of cases, like archaeology is still a very, to some degree, colonial discipline because a lot of the, the, the type sites and stuff for, for the artifacts and stuff, like they have 
colonial names essentially you know like laurel is it's a town in minnesota you know so we have to kind of reconcile that and we also have to reconcile the difference between like you know what traditional western scientific knowledge and traditional knowledge as well because traditional knowledge is a massive component of of anthropology and archaeology i don't know if i answered your question yeah (laughs) no i would say that that answered it and i think that i have further questions about truth and reconciliation within archaeology so, like, what do you currently see archaeology doing to try to use concrete action towards truth and reconciliation within the discipline? Yeah, well, it's it's good for uh, land claims and stuff like that. You know, um, I think you have to prove a community or, like, a people have been there for, like, a thousand years or something like that uh, to for, you know, land claims. So, like, I've done a little bit of work on land claims for a group in the Northwest Territories, just archival work. But, yeah, like, once again, it's just kind of, like, giving back to them and kind of filling in the gaps of where kind of, you know, the knowledge was was taken or lost through, you know, colonization. And it gives them a a really fulfilling kind of, you know, experience and stuff like that. And and, and it's the right thing to do as well. So I I think, you know, it's, you know, the the calls to action that they're awesome and Mm -hmm. and they're critical, but they shouldn't be the prime motivator for this you should be doing it just because it's the right thing to do and you'll get a lot more out of it as well yeah and it's also really fun just you know going into the bush with with elders you know i've spent like you know like a month at a time in in the bush and it's just the stuff that you learn you know and and even if you're not finding anything you know you're you're just in a beautiful place surrounded by you know, trees and like animals, you get to see cool stuff like, you know, caribou herds and, you know, you get to have cool encounters with like bears, like grizzly bears and polar bears and stuff like that. And you get to try out like, you know, get to fly around in choppers and, you know, quad, like, you know, use quads and argos and go to places where a lot of people don't go. And then, mm-hmm. and then you have like essentially the best tour guide you could get with like the elders and the resource users and stuff. And, and like I said before, like they see everything completely different than, uh, you know, like for example, I was doing a, a job at Wasquatam. Uh, we were uh, testing an area at Wasquatam Falls, this portage, and there was an elder from Nelson House in the situation. His name was Sam Dicehart, amazing guy. And he brought me to this little bay on Wasquatam Lake, really close to the falls. And he asked me, because like elders answer your questions with another question. Okay. Just, just to make sure that, you know, <laughs> yeah. you're listening and you're kind of picking up on stuff. And uh, he asked, why would this area be a really good place to, to shoot moose? And, uh, well, because, you know, you could see the moose coming out on the other side mm-hmm. of the, the little, the, the river. I'm like, well, yeah, but if you shoot the moose there, the current will take its carcass right to where we are. You know, like it's that sort of thing that it's 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 amazing. And and in um, in a lot of archaeological field methods, you want to test stuff by waterways, right? It's like in, especially in the boreal forest and stuff. But there's so many other areas like resource uh, extraction areas. There's like old glacial strand lines. There's eskers. You know, there's stuff that you wouldn't really kind of think of, right? And cold weather encampments because you wouldn't camp during the winter by a body of water. So it's that sort of stuff too that kind of really informs the way that you go you go about formulating a, a research plan and stuff like that through kind of feedback and interaction. And were you invited onto these trips through like your your university 
opportunities or? No. Um, uh, usually, like when I work for the historical resource branch, I was through government. Um, okay. And then with the uh, private consulting, it's essentially through, since Section 35, it's consultation and engagement, part of the Constitution Act in 1982. And uh, Indigenous communities have to be consulted and engaged if they're if their traditional tar- territory is being impacted by anything. And it's usually the proponents that contact the communities, not so much the archaeologists. In Ontario, there's a stipulation where they they highly recommend you contact the Indigenous communities at a st- called a stage two, which is essentially shovel testing to determine if there's a presence, absence of cultural material. Um, it should be stage one. Stage one is essentially a desktop study, eventually, essentially. But in, in a lot of other provinces, it's it's a, essentially based on the proponent, like the, the developers. Based like on your experience of entering these, you know, these communities in Manitoba and elsewhere in Canada, what have you experienced as like the main feeling towards an archaeologist coming into their communities? Yeah. That's all about cultivating relationships. Uh, like you have to establish trust because, you know, I said before, like archaeologists or archaeology is kind of, it comes from a colonial mindset, especially the early stuff. So a lot of the stuff, uh, uh, an individual will come into a community for three weeks, not really interact with anybody, go out, do you know, collect stuff and then leave, you know, mm-hmm. and that's not really all that meaningful. So, like, that kind of fostered a, an environment of, of mistrust, you know. And uh, But once you kind of establish that relationship and you kind of say, like, you know, I'm, I'm here for the greater good and, and to, to help and stuff like that. Like, you, you, like, you know, you can't go into a community, not interact with anybody and do your thing. Like, you have to go and hire people. You have to talk to elders, counselors, and all that stuff. And uh, But it, I think it's becoming... A little bit more um, accepted, like you know, you, like British Columbia. A lot of the communities there, a lot of the bands have their own archaeologists. Pegwis, you know, uh, there's myself and two other uh, individuals that are subcontracted by Pegwis to do archaeology and drone work, GIS stuff like that. So it's starting to become a little bit more prevalent, and also too, it's uh, just part of like the the Path to Reconciliation Act. Um, uh, it's a critical component as well. So it, it's getting it's getting a little better, but uh, you know there's some some road to uh, to go as well. Uh, but well, I, I think we're on a good path right now. We just can't we can't deviate it and de- deviate from it. So, mm. Yeah. So this is maybe important information though for people who are like me, younger students early in their university career to understand that as an archaeologist, it's not just work in isolation, that there's actually a lot of socializing and community interaction involved with that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, definitely. Uh, And, you know, once again, that that is very important. And the stuff that you learn in university, you know, it's, it's basically methods on artifact analysis and that sort of thing. But once you get into the bush, there's like a whole different realm that you have to kind of take in consideration, you know, like, uh, 
like confrontations with animals, inclement weather. Like, you know, if you're stranded out there, like say if you chopper into an area and a thunderstorm comes in, you're going to be there until that thunderstorm's gone because the chopper can't fly and that stuff. And like, you know, learning how to like, you know, survive almost, you know. Wow. And, yeah. Well, which makes it really challenging but really fun too. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> And just learning just different kind of traditional ways, like, you know, of tracking animals and stuff like that. Like, I, like every time I go in, into an area, I always tell my crew, have 360 degrees situational awareness. You have to know what's coming from behind, you know, like that sort of thing. Even how to walk through the bush, how to walk through floating muskeg, you know, how to, like, get off a, get out of a helicopter that's hovering and stuff like that. Like, there's a lot of stuff that uh that you have to take in consideration that you know university doesn't really talk about and and also to like uh engaging with how to talk to elders properly like even how to hand tobacco in a mm. good in a bright way and and ceremonial protocols like usually you learn that sort of thing when you're in the ceremony but uh because you know each ceremony is a little different right so and and, and also to depending on the practitioner like the the medicine man or the uh the the head man that's kind of you know leading the ceremony during your time in field work or even the time spent in like government and private sectors, have you found that your work crosses over with any of the current issues happening in Canada right now? Absolutely. Um, yeah, you do, just like land use, land claims and stuff like that. Uh, you know, there's specific land claims and there's comprehensive land claims and archaeology is a huge part of that. And, and yeah, like, you know, I, I think he, like personally, I think you have to know like the, the effects of treaties the Indian Act, all these different types of different comprehensive land claims, the whole comprehensive land claim system, you know, the indigenous communities relationships with like, it was called the National Energy Board, I completely forget what it's called now, like that sort of thing. Um, and, and just like knowing the kind of like the stories, the, the oral histories and stuff, just to try to kind of, and also just kind of where that community is as well, you know. And I, I think that it's it's really important to kind of know as much as possible because, you know, like you said, a lot of stuff kind of crosses over into different, like, uh, like educational kind of constructs and theoretical kind of constructs and different kind of social avenues you can take and, and different disciplines and stuff like that, you know. And, and so, yeah, and, and working with industry as well, like that's that's always a challenge for me. It's obviously something that you have to do. So, were you expecting to deal with all the things that you currently are in archaeology when you first started out, being interested in it as a young student? Uh, you know, when <laughs> I first started out, I yeah, I didn't think of any of that stuff. No, okay. you know, I was kind of more interested in you know learning Latin and you know, <laughs> okay. ancient Greece or Greek and stuff like that. I suck at languages, <laughs> but, you know, I, I tried my best. But, you know, like, I, I didn't, because, like, classical archaeology is completely different from CRM. It's it's ac more academic-driven. You know, like, the, there are CRM companies in, in Europe, like in England and stuff like that. But, you know, it, it's, it's completely different from, like, what we think of classical archaeology. It's kind of an academic-driven mm -hmm. discipline for the most part. And then CRM is completely different. And then you have all these different kind of components that fit into these, like, plugs and stuff that you have to deal with. And when I was younger and when I was, you know, first starting out, I didn't think of any of that stuff. But it, it's fun learning, though. Uh, uh, you know, it's, con like you, it's constant learning, you know. Like, you're, you can never read too much. <laughs> and, like, as an archaeologist, what would you say you spend the most time doing? 
regularly on your in your job and your yeah work? um well me i love being in the field uh okay. like i'm i'm kind of i'm not old <laughs> but um a lot of the, the 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 kids that i go out with now uh, in the field are you know 15 years younger than me and usually when you get to my age you're usually kind of like you sit back in an office and stuff like that but i i, I can't do that so my favorite place to be is just in the middle of nowhere, you know, with a shovel, and a couple <laughs> okay. people walking around, and uh, uh, and then during the winter time, artifact analysis, report writing, and that sort of thing. But I think where my happy place is in the bush. Yeah, absolutely. And that's an interesting point that you make too about the seasons here in Manitoba. Does that affect archaeology in Manitoba? To some degree, like the fact that we do have these changing seasons, does that change the ability to, let's say, like dig or even affect the artifacts themselves? Yeah, absolutely. Well, there, there's a lot of processes like that, taphonomic processes that, that affect site formation processes, like freeze-thaw cycles, you know, uh, bioturbation, chronoturbation, like, you know, moving artifacts around in the stratigraphy from, you know, like, yeah, like frost heaves and stuff like that and and also impacting artifacts too uh, roots as well that's a huge one um and also when you're trying to dig it's really hard to dig in the winter time because the ground is frozen so in some cases in extreme cases it, and but it gets costly for the proponents you can put like big uh, tents up and uh, bring in heaters and stuff like that but the majority of the field work in manitoba is done in the uh, summertime or well, you know spring summer fall when the ground's you know, not frozen. And then during the winter time, there's monitoring that you can go out. You know, I've monitored in minus 50. Uh, you, you just oh, wow. stand there. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, uh, it's uh, an experience because yeah. in a lot of the cases, you have to wear full PPE, right? Like, like you know, personal protective equipment, like hard hats, steel toes and stuff. And when it's minus 50 out, <laughs> it's just, it's very unpleasant. And then when you're taking notes, you have to use a pencil because you can't use a pen. And sometimes you're in an open field um, uh, and, you know, there's no, you know, uh, uh, relief from the wind and stuff. But usually, though, you don't really excavate uh, or do shovel testing or anything during the winter. In some jurisdictions like British Columbia, they can do that because their weather is a little bit milder. Uh, in some cases, too, they use quickie sauce to cut, cut stuff out and then bring it back to the lab and excavate it in the lab. That's happened in Manitoba actually once as well. But mm. it's, very, it's, it's rare for the most part. And why do you have to use pencils? Ah, uh, the ink freezes. Oh, See, that's something that you wouldn't think about if you weren't an archaeologist. Yeah. That's an interesting fact. Yeah, definitely. I'm kind of partial to using pens, but, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> whatever. I'm like, my, my writing is horrible. There's only a few people in the world that can write uh, that can <laughs> read it. But uh, I guess with a pencil, though, you have an eraser. So, you know, you yeah. can kind of erase stuff. So. so why do you think people considering going to university should consider taking an anthropology course or... I guess in this case, an archaeology course. Depending on what direction you want to go, if you want to go the classical route, it's 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 a lot more challenging. It's it's a challenge to do the classical uh, work, but it's it's all the acquisition of knowledge. It's kind of feeding into the, a larger database, building upon previous work, and you get this you know really large body of of data that you can kind of draw upon when you're doing different different individual projects and stuff. And, that, and that's the same to some degree for, for North American archaeology as well, and even CRM, because you can come back to the data that you collected and do more in-depth research if you want to, say, do a master's or something like that. And it gives back 
uh, especially at this time. We're at a pretty important juncture right now when, with reconciliation and stuff like that. And I think it's really important to, uh, you know, like, you know, like I've said like 15 times during this, this interview that it's important to give back to the people that have lost a lot. It, it's, it's fulfilling and you'll get to meet a lot of cool people. Uh, sometimes you go on these projects that last for six months and essentially you're like a kind of a big family. You spend day and night together, you know. It's an adventure, you know. If you if you like adventuring and stuff like that, um, uh, it's uh, it's a really great you know way to go. And if you like meeting people and experiencing different kind of like cultural components of their system, ceremony stuff like that, and yeah, it, it's really great. And also, I think it's getting better. Like for the longest time, I've been very fortunate. I've been in archaeology doing it for about eighteen years, and. I've been working steadily. Uh, in a lot of cases, a lot of people have a hard time finding steady employment in archaeology, especially in Manitoba. Mm -hmm. The hot spots are BC and Southern Ontario. So there's always, you know, areas to go, but sometimes, you know, it might be seasonal or whatever. But um, uh, those challenges, you can overcome them because I think there's going to be more, more happening uh, as, as time progresses. Well, Gareth, thanks so much for uh, talking with me today about archaeology and sharing with us about your own experiences within the field and all the different things that you're doing with the communities here in Manitoba as well. Before we end, I do have one or two quick questions to ask you just as like a personal, fun, lighthearted way to wrap up the conversation. Yeah. So you've talked a lot about how much you enjoy being in the bush. So what is... What is one place in Manitoba that you that you enjoy spending time outdoors? Gull Lake uh, on the Nelson River. Just an amazing place. There's so many amazing places there. Southeastern Manitoba, Tai Creek, that whole area, Bannock Point. You know, it's, it's amazing. A special place. So when you go there, you actually feel, you feel something. There's something mm. there, you know. And major petroforms there. It's it's. Uh, like the, the area is called Manitoba. It's where the, pla the place where the creator sits. And Tai Creek has been interpreted by, by you know, several people. I think Charlie Nelson has uh, said this. But that's where Wanabuju, who's the, the Anishinaabe culture hero, was lowered by the creator and, and kind of given instructions on how to give a, a good life. And all those instructions are encoded in the petroforms. And there's different kind of messages depending on what level of the midway when you're in so there's a really big spiritual presence there and you can feel it and it's and it's just it's an amazing oh, place wow. and, and also like pretty much i i don't even know if i have a favorite place it's it yeah <laughs> like they're all different but they're all they're all the same too like there's different you can get different experiences and stuff from you know in the, in the different areas that you go to but i don't in some of the areas yeah there's a special place in in my heart for them and uh, and just like that you know the, the people that I've you know spent time with there you know it's that's a very important you know uh, component as well I'm gonna have to check out some of these places yeah it's yeah like Bannock Point it's it's right off the highway it's like a petroform site but uh, it has been kind of um, disturbed to some degree because it's right mm -hmm. off the highway but Thai Creek is about three or four kilometers in the bush, and uh, it's fenced off. So, but yeah, like it, even going to Bannock Point, like it's just a very you can feel something there. You know, it's it's cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you've also mentioned that you're not you're not too good at languages, but is there a language that you that you've tried to learn? English. <laughs> English. <laughs> okay. um, yeah. Well, I, I've I've tried to learn. La well, 
Latin, ancient Greek, uh, French, Spanish, Italian. Okay. Um, as part of my uh, requirements for my PhD, I have to take a, a land language, and I think I might take Anishinaabemowin, mm. I think, or maybe uh, Omishkegawik, if, if it's possible. Like Omishkegawik Swampy Cree. Um, but, yeah, I, I'm not exactly I'm just not, not good at languages. That's something I, got, I have to work <laughs> on. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much. That no is, worries. My pleasure. Thank you. So this wraps up the third episode here on Human to Human. If you are new to anthropology, I hope you are able to gain a bit of a better understanding of what archaeology is and what archaeological fieldwork all entails. I also hope you will tune into the next week's episode where I do an interview with my guest, Dr. Rumal Holder, who is an instructor in anthropology here at the University of Manitoba. In that coming episode, Dr. Halder shares with us how his interest in studying anthropology originally brought him all the way from Bangladesh to St. John's, Newfoundland, to now presently Winnipeg. And we'll also hear more about his research on Bangladeshi immigrant communities in Toronto and the various ways people negotiate and define their cultural identities in new places. If you want to hear more from this podcast, Human to Human is available for listening on several platforms. We are on Spotify, Apple, SoundCloud, as well as YouTube. If you like this episode or have any questions, it would be great to hear from you in the comment section. We also have an email that you can contact the podcast through, and that will be included in the description box down below. I would also like to give a special thanks to the people at UMFM for providing me with the space and equipment to make this podcast possible, as well as the Department of Anthropology for funding this project. And of course, Dr. Lara Rosanoff-Gauvin, Dr. Warren Clark and Dr. William Flynn at Carleton University, who have been some of my greatest supporters in making this project happen. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you join me, Sarah Schur, on the next episode of Human to Human.